Hello, and we're so excited that you have joined us today. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with PKB Med. You are in for a great presentation today with our excellent faculty who will introduce in just a moment. Uh, for those of you that will be joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, welcome back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020, so over a year and a half later, we are incredibly grateful for the progress we've all made in managing patients during this pandemic. Before we get to today's program, a few housekeeping notes. You'll notice several windows on the console. We encourage you to move these to your liking and minimize what you don't need. You're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button to the left of the slide window. Questions will be addressed during our Q&A session at the end of the presentation. You'll be able to access the evaluation and the test for credit by clicking that claim credit button. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop future activities. Okay, here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. Please meet Dr. Shoham and Willa Cochran. Thank you, both of you, for taking time out of your busy practices to be here today. These are the faculty's disclosures. And this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. The learning objectives for today's program are to describe the mechanisms of action, indications for, and clinical trial data for various monoclonal antibodies under EUA or investigation for treating COVID-19, appraise the best opportunities for application of monoclonal antibodies to treat patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, and describe the effect of specific viral variants on monoclonal antibodies. Please note that the material presented in this program is current as of today, November 17th, 2021. So as we know, um, our knowledge of COVID and the guidelines are ever changing. So uh, we do advise if you're viewing this on demand to go to the NIH or IDSA websites for the most contemporary of guidelines. Uh, we're going to move now into the uh, a couple of knowledge questions here um, uh, before we kick off our content. So our first question is, monoclonal antibodies that are currently authorized for COVID-19 work by, is that blocking the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to attach to and enter human cells, inhibiting the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to replicate, inhibiting pro-inflammatory cytokines, inducing apoptosis of SARS-CoV-2, or triggering destruction of SARS-CoV-2 cell membrane? I'll give you a moment to uh, select your answer for that. Okay. Our next question. Monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with COVID-19? Is that patients not hospitalized for COVID-19, 18 years of age or greater, patients not hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or greater with a high risk for severe disease? Is it patients hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or greater requiring supplemental oxygen? Patients hospitalized for COVID-19 18 years of age or greater with high risk for severe disease? Select your answers now. Okay, and finally, this is our final question, the true or false question. It, is it true or false that alterations in the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 rendered the virus not susceptible to the currently authorized monoclonal antibody treatments and they became ineffective? Um, as you're answering this question, um, I will pass this off to Dr. Shoham. So Dr. Shoham, thank you so much for your time today. 
All right. I hope everybody can hear me. That you can. Great. All right. Um, so, um, okay. So I'm going to start with a presentation of a case, and uh, th this is a, a a real live case that uh, has happened. Just some tiny details have been changed to uh, uh, protect confidentiality. But the 70 year old man and his 68 year old wife are evaluated at the primary care clinician's office. And he has lung cancer for which he's receiving radiation and chemotherapy. And his symptoms are sore throat, cough, and fevers of two days duration. His oxygen saturation on room air is 96%. And an NP swab for SARS-CoV-2 is done and it's positive. She is his caretaker and she has an autoimmune disease for which she's receiving methotrexate. She has no symptoms and her NP swab is negative. Great. Uh, so um, this is a schematic of uh, uh, SARS-CoV and um, uh, the infection that it causes. And you've probably seen this uh, in various iterations a, a lot, but uh, I think it's still worth going through. So an important thing is in the days before symptoms begin, minus four down to uh, um, uh, zero, uh, the person uh, has uh, a good amount of virus that can be spread um, and uh, that uh, can cause uh, infection in other people. And that's really one of the huge problems with uh, COVID is that there is asymptomatic transmission. Uh, then as the antibody levels start building up, then the person uh, will uh, either resolve the infection or move on to the next level where they start uh, getting worse with hypoxemia, respiratory failure, fever, and hypotension. So the time for intervening with an antiviral is uh, in the time between, say, minus four days to symptoms and um, up to about uh, 10 days of, um, uh, of symptoms. That is the time to intervene with an antiviral. After that, the more important thing in most people uh, becomes uh, dealing with the immune response, the overimmune response. So antivirals early on, and one form of antiviral is uh, uh, passive immunotherapy with uh, monoclonal antibodies. Uh, and uh, then immunomodulation, the anti-inflammatory medications, whether they're steroids or something a little bit more targeted, that comes later. In terms of the clinical course, uh, in the pre-vaccine, pre-monoclonal antibody era, uh, mild to moderate disease was the rule, 81%. However, a substantial minority of people, uh, as we found out, will have severe disease manifesting as shortness of breath, hypoxemia, or extensive lung involvement on imaging and a substantial minority of those will then go on to be critically ill with respiratory failure, shock, multi-organ dysfunction, and even death. So that is how things looked like initially. And if you go to the CDC website, they still have that description up. And the reason for that is because uh, many people are not vaccinated. Many people do not uh, uh, have access, uh, ready access uh, uh, to um, 
therapies around the world, uh, monoclonal antibodies, which luckily uh, are available in, in this country and uh, as is uh, widespread vaccination. So looking at the hospitalization rates in the vaccination era, which also I would include is the, the, the monoclonal antibody treatment era, a vaccinated person with breakthrough COVID has about a 2% chance of hospitalization. That means that the newspapers are going to write about those people, Colin Powell, for example. I don't know his specifics, but that would be an example, so that uh, that, that they are highlighted. However, 98% of the people that are vaccinated are not going to end up in the hospital. An unvaccinated person with COVID has about a 10% chance of ending up in the hospital right now in this era, and if they're older, 18%. So still a huge chance to make a difference in unvaccinated people in terms of, uh, of, of early treatment and prevention, and vaccinated people, particularly those people that uh, have broken through with an infection and are at higher risk for hospitalization. So who are the people that have high risk for severe illness? Um, and uh, um, it, there's various levels of data, but uh, uh, I think that the, that um, the group that you see are a familiar group in terms of uh, uh, patients that you're probably seeing in your practice, patients with cancer, stroke, chronic kidney disease, chronic uh, medical conditions of, of almost any kind, and um, a uh, BMI of uh, over 30 is, is, is a clear-cut proven with uh, uh, meta-analysis systemic review, but cohort case control studies have also shown that BMI greater than 25, which I'm embarrassed to say I belong in that group, also are um, people at risk for severe disease. And then uh, solid organ transplants, stem cell transplants, the kind of patients I see all the time, patients with immuno. Uh, suppressive medication, cystic fibrosis, uh, these are all at uh, risk for severe illness. In terms of risk of death by age and chronic condition, as you get older, this is from the CDC, this slide, the risk of having a poor outcome from COVID increases. And we definitely saw that initially where the uh, older population and people in uh, assisted living facilities, nursing homes were really hit very hard by COVID. And then you can also home in and see that individual risk factors will lead to higher uh, rates of uh, poor outcome. However, that's not how patients live. Patients don't just say, I have chronic kidney disease. They have maybe chronic kidney disease plus hypertension plus diabetes. So uh, when you start adding up the conditions, and many of my patients have six to 10 or even more than 10 conditions, you can tell by their medication list or their problem list. And, you can, and, the, and as you start piling on more chronic illnesses, the risks increase for poor outcome. Uh, Homing in on this particular individual from the case with COVID-19 in people with cancer, it's more dangerous than the general population. Increased mortality, increased need for ICU, and not all cancer patients are equal. It's it, it, it's patients uh, cancer patients with increased uh, with, that are older, that are male, that have smoked, uh, and that have multiple comorbidities or have poor performance status, and of course, active cancer for which they're getting chemotherapy. Why is that important? Because not all cancer patients are equal, but also many cancer patients do belong in this category. Uh, cancer is generally a disease of older rather than younger people, although of course we all remember the young people with cancer that we encounter. 
One of the things about COVID is uh, that I, I like to say that it's like water. It exposes things uh, that existed. It exposes the cracks. It gets in the cracks and shows them to us. And one of the things that we've uh, uh, known about but really has been demonstrated is that uh, it's not an equal opportunity offender, uh, COVID, is that uh, groups that uh, have uh, historically had uh, uh, worse outcomes from medical conditions because of uh, uh, access to healthcare issues and um, uh, things associated with that have disproportionately suffered from uh, uh, the bad outcomes of COVID. So compared to a white non-Hispanic person, uh, somebody who's of American Indian or um, Alaska Native or non-Hispanic uh, uh, person, uh, Pacific Islander, uh, all increased risks of cases, hospitalizations and death compared to a white non-Hispanic person. Similarly, um, um, increased risk uh, in African-Americans, Hispanic or Latino persons. So uh, uh, higher risk in uh, uh, groups that have historically and currently uh, had uh, uh, worse outcomes with medical conditions. Uh, the vast majority of people with COVID are ambulatory patients. We uh, hear about and the news talks about the people in the hospital, the people in the ICU, but the vast majority of people with COVID are at home. Uh, healthcare, where does healthcare happen? Uh, healthcare tends to happen uh, in hospitals and in doctor's office. Where does where do health needs happen? In people's homes. So one of the things that uh, uh, Willa Cochran is going to talk about is, is trying to uh, work on getting people the healthcare where they need it. Um, and one form of, uh, of health care is passive immunotherapy, something I've been involved in in the past uh, 18 months uh, in, in various uh, forms. Passive immunotherapy is an old type of therapy, but it's a new type of therapy. Uh, people have talked about the three ages of antimicrobial therapy, the initial age, the first age, as shown in this uh, uh, picture by Bering, uh, from an article by Bering, 1890, he won the Nobel Prize for this, showing how you can infect animals with uh, diphtheria or tetanus, then take their blood and the uh, antibody portion of their blood, the, the serum or the plasma, and then give it to people and uh, prevent or cure infection, the first stage of uh, antimicrobials. However, pretty soon after that, uh, the um, uh, small molecules like penicillin and sulfonamides and others came on, and they were much easier to use, much safer to use, uh, didn't have the toxicity of taking serum or plasma from an animal and putting it into a human. And uh, uh, passive immunotherapy became uh, much less uh, common. However, with the revolution in uh, molecular biology and development of monoclonal antibodies uh, about uh, uh, 19, late 1990s, uh, development of the third age of uh, antimicrobial therapy started with uh, uh, palivizumab, which is a drug, a monoclonal against the RSV. And then soon after that, a few others came, but then came 2020 with um, uh, COVID everything got supercharged. And now you can see that there's multiple monoclonal antibodies, both for uh, uh, COVID and then also for some other emerging diseases. And we've really fully entered the third age of antimicrobial therapy. 
And how do the, do the monoclonals work um, for infectious disease? They, uh, th this particular virus has the spike proteins uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, decorate the outside of the virus, and those spike proteins have a specific area that binds to the host cell. And if you can um, um, cover those up with antibodies, whether those are antibodies that uh, are generated by uh, body's response to a vaccine or antibodies that are generated by uh, a, uh, a, a passive immunotherapy through um, monoclonal uh, or convalescent plasma, then you can potentially block the binding of the spike protein to the receptor and inhibit the ability of the uh, uh, of the virus to uh, cause infection. Uh, there's a variety of monoclonals that have been uh, uh, developed and they're uh, shown uh, in the uh, right side of the uh, slide, um, or uh, I guess the, uh, the left side of the slide, and what they uh, indicate is where the monoclonals bind to the uh, specific virus. Uh, it's incredibly important with uh, um, this type of therapy that you get the right drug at the right time in the right patient. Uh, for cardiologists, this is very uh, understandable. Uh, for oncologists, this is very understandable that there's uh, times when certain diseases can be treated and then there's times when the window is closed. Infectious disease doctors, we're just wrapping our mind around that. And uh, in, in, in in terms of a monoclonal antibody or passive immunotherapy, the window is the best before the person develops uh, um, their own antibodies and before the viral load starts dropping. Because as the antibodies are coming up in the person, the viral load is dropping. And um, then in some ways, the die is cast as to whether they're going to have the hyperinflammatory response and at which point antivirals aren't going to be helpful or if you can prevent that from happening by coming in and really helping them early on. It's sort of a race against time. Who's gonna get there first? The body's over immune, uh, over abundant immune response or the uh, antiviral uh, that uh, knocks down the amount of virus. Um, so um, some people get better without any treatment. That's a great thing about COVID, but also a problem in that, that people sort of underestimated. If everybody that got COVID got sick and died, it would be uh, uh, an, a, it'd be really easy to convince people to get vaccinated and to uh, uh, get treatment right away. However, a lot of people get better on their own, but a substantial minority don't, and that's where uh, the work comes in to try to uh, prevent or to treat infection. Timing is critical. The window to treatment opens, the window to treatment closes. And when it's closed, you can give a monoclonal antibody, but it's not gonna make a difference. And we've seen that in some of the hospitalized patients where they get uh, treatment, uh, uh, whether it's monoclonal antibody or convalescent plasma, doesn't make a difference, it's too late. Uh, and then the other thing that's different about uh, using uh, passive immunotherapy against uh, a respiratory virus as compared to, say, using it for cancer, a monoclonal antibody for cancer, or a monoclonal antibody for a disease like um, rheumatoid arthritis, is that the uh, the viruses are constantly mutating. Now, cancer mutates, but not at the speed that viruses are. They're mutating all the time. So a drug that is effective today may not be effective in a month. And then may actually become effective again. One of the drugs that I'll talk about was uh, uh, very effective um, for a period of time, and then the uh, FDA yanked its uh, approval or, or authorization because it was no longer effective against the prevalent variant, and then it became effective again uh, in the era of Delta. Um, so um, uh, 
that's uh, an issue with respiratory viruses that's different than other places where you use monoclonal antibodies. So the first drug that I'll talk about uh, is uh, um, it's a combination drug, uh, bemlanivimab and ethosivimab. Uh, and uh, in this uh, study, the BLAZE-1 randomized control trial, which had a diverse population, uh, including uh, a good amount of uh, older people, um, the um, uh, uh, patients were either given this combination or um, a placebo. And uh, you can see that uh, the risk of hospitalization or death in those in the purple-pink compared to those in the red is substantially lower. And that means that with this combination given early on in infection, you could prevent uh, uh, the vast majority of people from requiring progression to hospitalization. Um, now, as I was sort of hinting on a little earlier, uh, viruses mutate, and uh, the uh, prevalent variants that were available for that were around for a period of time were resistant to um, to this combination, and um, um, the uh, uh, the drug had to be uh, uh, distribution had to be paused for a while. With the Delta variant, they are sensitive to it, so um, um, it, it's come back and is being used again. Um, this next combination is uh, Casarivimab imdevimab, and that's the, uh, the, the Regeneron cocktail that uh, uh, had uh, it, it sort of become, in some ways, the, uh, uh, the, the poster child for uh, monoclonal antibodies, although, although I will tell you that it's not, certainly not the only one there. There's uh, uh, three that are currently uh, being used uh, widely. The one I just talked about, uh, this one, and then uh, a third one, which I'll talk about uh, soon. Uh, in a study involving over 4,000 patients, including uh, a good percentage of them that were uh, obese, uh, using uh, the drug against placebo, they used it at two different doses, and uh, the impact was was quite similar in that, uh, again, can significantly almost eliminate the need for hospitalization or death using this drug. One of the things that's uh, helpful here is that it's also available by subcutaneous. Now, the FDA would prefer you to use IV as your go-to. However, uh, subcutaneous is uh, a uh, possibility for in situations where you just can't uh, uh, do the logistics of giving uh, uh, it by uh, IV. And then the uh, newest kit on the block, sotorivimab, um, and uh, the EUA for that one was in May of 2021. Uh, the results um, are for... Um, uh, the uh, IV that I will go over, although uh, there is now new findings that IM works uh, probably just as well. Uh, and uh, in this study that uh, included, uh, again, a good amount of people that uh, were at risk for having uh, bad outcomes, obesity is an example, um, the uh, uh, drug was effective in all but eliminating the need for uh, hospitalization uh, and, uh, God forbid, death. So uh, uh, a another option and um, 
uh, was was quickly uh, translated into clinical use. And uh, when somebody gets a monoclonal antibody, they can uh, get this one as well as the others. One of the I interesting and maybe helpful thing about this one is that it's got uh, uh, two mechanisms that it works, both blocking viral entry and uh, helping to clear infected cells. And um, as we... Uh, move into um, out of the clinical trials into real world study of monoclonal antibodies. You see this study, which was published in uh, open form infectious disease just recently here, uh, not as part of a randomized prospective clinical trial, but a real world experience with uh, in a city that uh, of a half a million um, that um, uh, patients were uh, uh, treated uh, when they visited an outpatient clinic. Uh, um, they, uh, um, the, the patients that uh, uh, were eligible for and received the monoclonal antibody were given that option, and uh, and then those that uh, received it were then compared to historical control similar patients, but before the availability of monoclonals. And you can see the uh, the, the difference. This is sort of the pre-monoclonal era, 12% need for hospitalization uh, or uh, within 30 days, those numbers, uh, some of the early numbers from the slides that I showed you in the beginning. And then you can all but eliminate that uh, down to 2% with uh, a monoclonal antibody real world experience uh, in addition to the clinical trials I reviewed. So what to consider with the monoclonal antibody? So first consider them as an antiviral. The benefit is gonna be again, when an antiviral is going to be uh, beneficial, uh, and that's going to be early on. There are going to be some patients that uh, uh, have uh, uh, an effect from passive immunotherapy later on, perhaps uh, particularly patients that are immunocompromised and never form their own antibodies, but in the uh, vast majority of patients, it's going to be early on. Hospitalized patients that have not yet formed protective antibodies, there is a study from the UK showing that it could be beneficial there. However, not approved or authorized for that indication in the US. And again, if the patient's already formed antibodies and they're sick enough to be in the hospital, their problem is not needing to get rid of virus. Their problem is that their immune has, system has responded, over-responded, and the treatment is different. Um, Remember that the uh, monoclonal antibodies are authorized for outpatients only with the caveat that if somebody's in the hospital for something else, if they broke their hip and they have uh, uh, discovered to have COVID in the hospital, they weren't sick enough to be in the hospital for COVID, we're not going to penalize them and say, well, you're in the hospital, you can't get the monoclonal antibody because that's not what they're in the hospital for. They're not in the hospital because their COVID has progressed to the point where they can't benefit from monoclonals. They're in the hospital for something else. So. Uh, these are the people that uh, uh, um, the monoclonals are going to work for. And then homing in further, then um, it's going to be, uh, these are the groups that are at high risk for progression to severe infection and that are going to benefit the most from monoclonal antibodies. And that, that's where the focus is of using those. And uh, again, it's going to be older people. Embarrassingly, people like me whose BMI is greater than 25, uh, uh, I need to get on that treadmill a little bit more, um, and uh, uh, pregnancy, diabetes, and you can see the list of uh, people that uh, are going to uh, uh, benefit the most from monoclonal antibodies. Uh, in terms of formal recommendations for monoclonal antibodies, the NIH recommends uh, uh, the uh, uh, use of the available products that are out there right now, which is the bamlanivimab, etasivimab, or the casirubimab, 
bevimab or the sotorivimab in outpatients at high risk. And the IDSA has similar recommendations, although what was added also was that local variant susceptibility may be considered in the choice of most appropriate uh, antibody. So what about all these variants that I talked about? So this is a map from the CDC of the variants in the U.S. And uh, it used to be that it was more of a mosaic. You had this variant, that variant. Well, Delta has been so overwhelmingly efficient in infecting people that it's taken over. Orange is Delta. So you can see little slivers of other colors in there, but it's Delta, Delta, Delta everywhere in the country. And uh, that may not be the case in three to six months. So things may be uh, different, but right now it's, uh, it, it's Delta. And what does that mean in terms of susceptibility? So bamlanivimab at the Sivimab works for Delta, works for Alpha, does not work well for Beta and Gamma, which we're not seeing a ton of. The uh, other ones, Kassarivimab, Imdemivib, and Sotorivimab, they work for all of them, although there could be new uh, variants that will emerge that will throw us curveballs. A um, little bit more on um, the um, uh, other aspect, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So Bamlanivimab and Ethesivimab have been uh, 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 proven uh, effective for post-exposure prophylaxis in the congregate setting, like nursing homes and, and casarivimab, imidimimab uh, in the uh, home setting, both of those by uh, 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 IV, and then also the casarivimab, imidimimab by subcutaneous. When within a week of exposure, close contact, um, ideally as soon as possible, and who is for adults and uh, for those at high risk for progression to severe disease who are either not vaccinated, still many, many people not vaccinated in the U.S., or who have been vaccinated but are unlikely to mount a good immune response. So in this particular case, uh, it would be uh, somebody who's gotten uh, uh, a, uh, a transplant or uh, rituximab or uh, other treatments that are uh, impair their ability to develop good antibody response, even if they've been vaccinated. And uh, here's uh, some of the data. So for the Kassarivimab, Imdimivab, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis, 1,500 patients. Uh, they went all over the country. They uh, found people that had household exposure. They uh, gave them uh, the uh, drug versus placebo, and they were able to uh, reduce the chance of infection substantially down to 4.8%. And that was whether the person was uh, diagnosed with infection just by uh, microbiological testing or microbiological testing and symptoms. When you just got into the people that just had symptoms, you weren't trying to just uh, prevent uh, them being uh, uh, COVID positive. You wanted to prevent COVID positive with symptoms then uh, it was down to 1.5%. So very effective, 81% uh, uh, risk reduction. And uh, uh, a similar, slightly different design study was done in uh, uh, people that were residents and staff of skilled nursing facilities. You remember early on uh, the horror stories of uh, what happened at uh, nursing homes where uh, uh, many people died uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the residents and uh, in terms of the staff, and uh, it, it was uh, horrendous. So big need to try to figure out if that can be prevented. And uh, a uh, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis study was done, and you could significantly reduce 
but not uh, uh, prevent the uh, number of, uh, uh, of infections in uh, people that were residents or residents and staff. Uh, so uh, putting all that together before I hand it over to uh, uh, my colleague, I strongly believe that today, November 17, 2021, with the combination of vaccination, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and post-exposure prophylaxis, we can all but eliminate COVID deaths in this country today. Um, it's a double tragedy that not only do people continue to die, but that we can prevent it. And uh, Will is going to talk about a little bit about uh, uh, how that can be done. Thanks, Dr. Shoham. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit about, um, you know, now that we have all of these uh, drugs available to us, the boots on the ground, the logistics of getting them to patients is, um, I would argue, uh, uh, at least half the challenge. So let's circle back to Mr. and Mrs. A. Um, just as a reminder, he's a 70-year-old man with cancer, and his wife, his caregiver, is um, undergoing treatment for an autoimmune disease with methotrexate. So he has COVID and she does not, but she is exposed to him. So let's make sure they meet criteria for monoclonal antibody infusion. First of all, uh, they are within 10 days of onset of symptoms and or exposure. So his symptoms started, uh, I believe, two days ago. Um, for people who have been diagnosed with COVID, they need to be within 10 days of the onset of symptoms, regardless of the date of test. Uh, so if their onset of symptoms is within less than 10 days, they may benefit from the antibody infusion. In terms of exposures, the exposure needs to be within one week, needs to be unmasked within six feet of the person with either known or supposed COVID uh, for at least 15 minutes. So most of the exposures that we get a call about, um, the duration is greater than 15 minutes and folks were unmasked and it, it's a pretty clear cut decision on our end. Um, in their case, they qualify medically because they're both over 65. They both either have an immunosuppressive disease or are on treatment for that. And these conditions can, um, you can look them up with this link here if you have specific questions about um, your patients. Uh, so I'll just walk you through the, the process at our center. Really, the idea is for every member of the care team to work at the height of their license. So a lot of this happens without an MD. And in fact, much of it happens without um, a, an advanced practice provider. So the nurses that work on our team can refer uh, directly from monoclonal antibody infusion. And I consult from a distance, um, sometimes with telemedicine with the patient, sometimes without. So on day two, um, the nurse at the primary care clinic can refer Mr. and Mrs. A for monoclonal antibody infusion. Um, she, he or she can actually refer them for in-home infusion if it's available in their area. Um, the nurse, if the patient agrees for referral, the nurse can consult with me to make sure that it's a reasonable um, case for infusion. And then um, the rest is hands off in terms of infusion. The infusion center is a third party center that we use um, here. We have probably eight different referral sites in Maryland that we're using right now. And I'm aware that you are not all in Maryland. And so uh, my first recommendation would be to check your um, state health department site, but also to check um, for monoclonal antibody infusion at home. And there's a website that's mabsathome.com. Um, but you can also Google it. Um, in this case, on day three, um, both 
husband and wife received infusion on an odd day 10. They were followed up in telemedicine clinic with an infectious disease NP. Uh, Mrs. A did not develop uh, COVID symptoms and was not retested and Mr. A's symptoms resolved. So as I said, our process sort of uh, revolves around everybody working to the height of their license. So the nurse can screen, consult the advanced practice provider, the referral form is submitted online, no faxing, no uh, no phone calls. And we, we are responsible for monitoring symptoms in the days and weeks after the infusion, but there are clinicians on site who monitor for um, any adverse reactions to the infusion. Um, I then oversee folks who, who were either diagnosed with COVID and got treatment with monoclonals or who had an exposure and had pre, I mean, post-exposure prophylaxis two clinics a week. I liaise between the inpatient infectious disease clinicians and the outpatient, um, in my case, transplant um, coordinators. And at this point, I'll hand it over to Faith for some post-test questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much uh, for that fantastic presentation. Um, as a note, these slides should be available now in the resource window. My apologies if you're hearing the city outside my window. Um, to our learners, please ask any questions you may have for faculty by submitting those in the Q&A box. Um, but first, we will revisit our knowledge questions, and you should see the first one here. Um, it says monoclonal antibodies that are currently authorized for COVID-19 work by is that blocking the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to attach to and enter human cells, inhibiting the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to replicate, inhibiting pro-inflammatory cytokines, inducing apoptosis of SARS-CoV-2, or triggering destruction of SARS-CoV-2 cell membrane? I will give you a moment to uh, answer that. All right, um, here's what we said before. And here is how our audience responded after. So what, uh, Dr. Shaham, was the correct uh, answer here? Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm super happy to see that the numbers uh, increased before and after. Uh, and it is uh, the most important uh, uh, mechanism for monoclonal antibodies is to block the ability of the virus to attach and then to enter the human cells. Wonderful, thank you so much. And here is our second question. Um, monoclonal antibodies are authorized to treat which group of patients with COVID-19? Is that patients not hospitalized for COVID-19, 18 years of age or older, patients not hospitalized for COVID-19, 12 years of age or older with high risk for severe disease, patients hospitalized for COVID-19, 12 years of age or older requiring supplemental oxygen or patients hospitalized for COVID-19, 18 years of age or older, with high risk for severe disease? I'll give you again one more moment to answer. Okay, this is what we said before. And Willa, here is our audience response after. How did our learners do? They did well, definite improvement. Um, so, Yes, it is approved for uh, folks 12 years of age or older who are at high risk for progression um, if they had COVID, specifically not hospitalized with the caveat that if they are hospitalized for a non-COVID reason and subsequently found to be COVID positive, some centers have been able to get monoclonal infusion inpatient. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and our next question here, uh, this is a true or false question. Um, alterations in the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 rendered the virus not susceptible to the currently authorized monoclonal antibody treatments, and they became ineffective. So we're asking, is this true or false? Okay, this is what our learner said before. And here's the response after. So Dr. Shoham, what were we looking for here? Um, so thankfully the, uh, uh, the Delta variant is still susceptible to the currently uh, available monoclonal antibodies that uh, have been authorized by the uh, FDA. So um, it is uh, um, the vast majority of you guys that uh, voted for false were correct. It is uh, still effective. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again to um, both of you for that insight for our learners here. Uh, we are going to move into the Q&A segment now. So um, if you want to submit a question, please click the Q&A button. That should be to the left of your console, and we will try to get to as many as time allows. Um, so our first question here, uh, where can we find protocols for administering sub-Q, casirivimab, imdevimab, and intramuscular sotrovimab? Would it be practical or doable in an outpatient primary care clinic? So I can say that it would it be practical or doable in an outpatient primary clinic care clinic and and the answer is it depends. So it depends on what you could do in the workflow. You can give it anywhere it's been given in um uh, in, in the education rooms for uh, firehouses, it's been given in uh, school and classrooms. What you need to do is you need to have a place where uh, uh, people that uh, are um, uh, infected with COVID, the ones that are going to get the, the treatment, uh, can safely go um, according to uh, local protocols uh, and receive uh, treatment without uh, infecting um, uh, staff or um uh, or, or other patients at, at the uh, clinic. So it's totally doable. Uh, and um, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, examples of, of how it's uh, been done. Uh, it can also be done at home. Okay, fantastic. And our next question, um, can someone who has been vaccinated receive monoclonal antibodies? I'm happy to respond to that one. Of course, uh, if it seems uh, clinically uh, necessary. So if somebody um, if somebody has been diagnosed with COVID-19, the odds of them having protective antibody are low to none, correct? So if, they, if they've gotten COVID after a vaccine, of course they do qualify for the antibodies if they um, are within 10 days of onset of symptoms. Um, if they have been vaccinated and they have had an exposure to COVID, they would qualify for monoclonals as post-exposure prophylaxis only if they, we have reason to believe that the vaccine may have been ineffective. So if they have any um, immunosuppressive um, diseases or treatments that, that would m give us a, a, an inclination that potentially the vaccine would not um, provide protection. All right, and here is one final question here. We got so many great questions coming in and I see them continue to come in. Um, we will not be able to answer all of these today. However, please stay tuned for upcoming webinars. Um, we do keep these questions. We might just answer yours in one of those. So uh, here's our final question today. How do these antibodies compare with oral antivirals that will likely be available soon? So I'm happy to take that one and uh, it, it, it's uh, it's very exciting that we're going to have more options to uh, treat uh, 
COVID. I think that uh, a couple of uh, words of caution about the uh, oral antivirals that are coming. One is that uh, the history of uh, antivirals uh, in a uh, uh, mutating environment has been that uh, uh, sometimes the viruses will develop uh, resistance to it. And um, so um, uh, um, don't uh, throw away all your monoclonals yet because the orals are coming because uh, I, I think that uh, resistance uh, can and will develop and uh, uh, resistance is sometimes uh, unpredictable. Um, and uh, um, it, it, uh, the, the lessons we've learned from many, many viral infections is that, uh, uh, that, that combination therapies are sometimes needed uh, to prevent uh, resistance uh, uh, developing to the uh, to an antiviral, so uh, uh, a, a very welcome uh, development of having additional options, but uh, I think that it's going to be an evolving field. The other issue is that at least one of the drugs uh, that's coming has ritonavir as a part of it, and ritonavir is uh, a uh, uh, a drug that in, impairs the uh, cytochrome P450 uh, um, uh, activity so that uh, it's used to boost other medications to increase the dose of uh, other medications. We use that in HIV uh, sometimes to boost uh, the uh, level of uh, the medication that comes with ritonavir. The other problem, though, is it sometimes boosts medications that you didn't want boosted. So with transplant patients on, uh, uh, say, tacrolimus, when they're getting the um, uh, exposed to ritonavir, um, then uh, their tacrolimus level goes up and many, many, many drug interactions. So uh, I think uh, these will need to be navigated with uh, uh, the uh, new medications if uh, and when they uh, become authorized for use. Okay, I guess we'll see then. Thank you so much to both of you uh, for your invaluable insights there. Uh, for our learners, if you'd like to claim credit, please click that claim credit button. It will also be available when the webcast ends and be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll get that in your inbox and as always, your responses will help us develop further education. To our podcast listeners, please leave a rating and review on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds and helps us grow our channel. Um, and to those of you on YouTube, please like the video, subscribe to our channel. It's an easy way to show your support and get access to more of our education. So thank you so much, and we'll see you again soon. Uh, Dr. Shoam, Willa, thanks, thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye.